Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now, I would remind you, as we come to this text, uh, this is picking up from a small break in the action. What we looked at last week was um, we looked at the section of uh, verses uh, chapter 3, verses 23 through 38, which uh, collects a genealogy of Jesus Christ. And this happens uh, right before this moment of uh, what in your Bibles may be titled something like the temptation of Jesus or temptation in the wilderness or, uh, you know, three temptations of Christ or something something of that nature. Uh, this little section is um, preceded by a genealogy, a genealogy, a list of uh, people who were connected to Jesus. Uh, and what we said as we studied that was that this is establishing uh, Jesus's legal and his royal claim uh, within Israel. It marks him out as um, a member of the household of David and establishes his his line to the throne. Uh, but what it, it this genealogy does is that it begins um, differently than it does with uh, some of the other genealogies that you find in scripture, namely that this genealogy uh, is on the basis of going in reverse. This starts uh, here with Jesus and goes um, backward in time to uh, remarking upon who was the son of the son of the son of the son, rather than saying this is the father of, who was the father of, who was the father of. Uh, and what we are intended to see here in the text is that this is uh, directly contrasting with the baptism of Christ, uh, where God has uh, revealed on the scene at the baptism of Christ that Jesus is the beloved son in whom he is well pleased. And now he's marked out here in the genealogy immediately following that. Um, and that genealogy ends uh, different than any other genealogy. It also ends going back past Adam. Uh, Matthew's genealogy, it goes back and it, it, and it stops, uh, or rather begins there uh, or, um, with Abraham. Uh, whereas Luke's goes back past that all the way to Adam. It ends uh, in verse 38 with these words, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And so we have this description of uh the baptism of Jesus, what God has said about his own son. We have uh, the genealogy going back from Jesus to Adam. And now we come to the temptation of Jesus in which uh, Jesus faces uh, this period of time in where he is interacting with uh, Satan in the wilderness. Now, he didn't intend to go out here perhaps um, with this in mind, but it was certainly a consideration uh, if you look at um, verse 1 and 2, we get these words from Luke as he describes the scene. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So it begins uh, noting for us that Jesus. <clears throat> is filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, he is full of the Holy Spirit, it says there specifically. Uh, and this isn't to say that there, there before this that Jesus was not filled with the Holy Spirit. What Luke's intending for us to see is that Jesus is someone who is completely yielded to the Holy Spirit, completely given over to the Holy Spirit, that he is um, absolutely obedient to God in every aspect. And this is something that is noteworthy uh, and is a characteristic of those who are full of the Holy Spirit as well. They are filled with the Holy Spirit, and so therefore they bear the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, uh, as described to us in the book of Galatians. And uh, those who are uh, filled with the Holy Spirit are controlled by the Holy Spirit because they delight to do what God has uh, set before them. 
Uh, the book of Ephesians tells us that God has prepared good works for those who are his. He's prepared them beforehand that we might walk in them because we are his workmanship. We belong to him. And so he's made all of these nice things for us to participate in, to be a part of his family. And he ha has enabled us to walk in that way. Uh, <clears throat> now, for a Christian, this is a desire that you would have, that you would want to do what God is asking you to do. And here, this is what is being said of Jesus, that he is seeking to obey. He's not somebody who is uh, self-seeking. He's not somebody who is wanting to do his own thing. He's not trying to figure out what do I really want. He's trying to discern and to discover how can I obey God. <clears throat> and in this instance, we see that he's returning from the Jordan and is being led by the Spirit in the wilderness. So Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. He's being led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Um, and this kind of does two things for us. Number one, <clears throat> it lets us see that uh, it's, this wasn't a situation where uh, Jesus just went out there and it was kind of like, well, you know, shouldn't have been out there in the wilderness doing whatever you were doing. That was real stupid of you to be out there uh, by yourself. But here we're told that he explicitly went out to the wilderness by himself. He was out here in the wilderness, led by the Holy Spirit. This was motivated by uh, God's leading. He's uh, in a position to be, of course, here exposed to temptation, uh, but rather uh, he is trying to walk where God is leading him to. And, and I think that this is a helpful understanding for us because as we seek to follow the Lord, um, there will be things that come up, trials and temptations, uh, that are there in the midst of us trying to obey. And that doesn't mean that you're going the wrong way. That simply means that uh, you might be seeking to do the right thing and the enemy's trying to distract you from what God is asking you to do, where, about where he's leading you, about what he's um, wanting to direct you in, and he's seeking to come in and be a distraction. But the other reason that the wilderness is remarkable here uh, is because, uh, of course, Throughout Israel's history, this was a place that was um, often had demonic activity associated with it, but it was also a place where, um, where, where God's people would go to commune with him, that they would go in a, a, a time of preparation. If you recall that John was in the wilderness, we see that Elijah was out in the wilderness. We see, <clears throat> of course, that Moses, uh, he was out in the, in the wilderness leading sheep. He became a shepherd for a good amount of time uh, in the wilderness before God met him there in that moment. Um, and so uh, he goes out here in a, t in a place that is often um, in the scriptures uh, marked by activity that uh, is demonic in nature, becomes uh, supernatural, but yet he goes out there um, to meet with the Lord and he walks in a similar path as uh, many in Israel's history. And so as he goes out there, uh, we're told that uh, he's there for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. So he's got a 40-day fast happening, uh, and he is being tempted by the devil. And uh, as this fast ended, he was hungry. Of course, he was hungry. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. Now, the 40-day fast <clears throat> that's listed here um, is remarkable in the sense that it, of course, is a physical feat, um, but it's also remarkable in the sense that uh, there's a bit of connection to, of course, Israel's past as well. Uh, in Israel's history, the number comes up uh, um, quite a bit, but there's also a few instances that are more specific here, and they are connected to those prophets of old as well. If you recall, um, 40 years was the number of years that Israel wandered around in the wilderness before they entered the promised land. After they left Egypt, they wandered about uh, kind of in this circular pattern almost for 40 years before they finally made it to the land of promise. <clears throat> we find the number 40 is connected to 
God's judgment upon the earth and raining down uh, um, during the flood of Noah, that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights there to mark a completion of judgment. Um, oftentimes that number can be associated with. Um, but <clears throat> um, we also see that uh, other prophets in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 4, we see that um, Ezekiel was uh, told that he would bear the iniquity of Judah for 40 days. Uh, but then we also see that Jesus is connected um, to others who held similar fasts of 40 days. Uh, Moses, in Exodus uh, 34, um, he, he participates in a 30-day fast there as he's up um, on the mountain for 40 days, receiving the covenant um, from God. And then we also find that Elijah, um, he has fasted at key points in key moments in Israel's history. And so there's kind of a connection here uh, between these prophets of old, but then specifically Moses, right? Because Moses went off, he went up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, to meet with the Lord to get the law. And he went out on this 40-day um, fast there as he was uh, receiving the Ten Commandments and uh, he was receiving the law of God as he comes, um, he's gone for 40 days. The people are like, he must be dead. They don't know what's happening. But he comes down um, and he has this uh, covenant and establishing this covenant with God between Israel uh, and the Lord. And so uh, he um, becomes significant because of the way you'll see it here that Jesus ends up doing battle uh, with the enemy in this particular uh, passage. Now, uh Jesus is out fasting in the wilderness for 40 days, and he is in a position now of weakness. He's not eaten, we're told. Uh, we've, we've been told. Um, he is at an absolute disadvantage. He is physically weak. He is in a position where he's not able to uh, resist as strongly. Um, and this is exactly when the enemy makes his move. The devil makes his move in a point in time where Jesus is exposed. And, and this is important for us to understand as God's people, because this is exactly uh, what the enemy does in our lives. When we become exposed, when we have not been reading our Bibles, when we are uh, running on a lack of sleep, when we are running on uh, not eating and not um, establishing you know, healthy patterns in our lives, those things leave us open to the weakness of our human condition, to the natural desires of the flesh, to the natural desires um, that we are, uh, that are, are mostly um, born out of our sinful condition. And so those desires might not even, uh, they might be good desires that are corrupted, or they might just be outright sinful desires. But it's important that, you know, we are a people who are being faithful to steward over what we have been given by God, our resources, our time, our finances. So one of the best things that you can do practically to combat the enemy working in your life and trying to um, attack you is just be a good steward of what God has given you. Have your ducks in a row. Make sure that you have a schedule. Make sure that you are making wise choices for your health. Make sure that you are you know, uh, in connection with people within the church and, and you have community, make sure that you're reading your Bible, just like the very, very simple basics that are happening in life that you've got to get through, make those things ways that you are serving the Lord faithfully, that you are honoring him, that you are determining to take care of yourself so that way you are able to defend yourself against the attacks of the enemy, but you're also able to serve other people that you're also able to pull out of that reserve of strength that you may have that God has entrusted you with for that day and that you can serve other people with that strength. It's important that that's, we just don't overlook those simple things. Oftentimes we want to make things overly spiritual, but the reality is, is that everything is spiritual. There's not a, a way where we can say, well, you know, exercise is only like a, a, uh, 
physical thing and it doesn't have any spiritual bearing as well. No, it's a stewardship of the body that God has given you. It's a discipline, just like you have to be disciplined to read the scriptures, that you've got to be disciplined uh, to seek him in prayer. You've got to be disciplined in all these other areas as well. And so be faithful, be encouraged. These are some simple ways that you can do rightly by the Lord. Now, as you do that, you prepare yourself to serve him and to serve others. But in this particular instance, Jesus knew what he was doing. He was going out to seek the Lord. He was going out to meet with God. And he knew that his condition would be weakened over time. But that's the point of his period here. That's the point of a fast, that he's not relearn, learning to rely and depend on his own bodily condition. He's not seeking to be self-reliant, but he's seeking to uh, be dependent upon the Lord. And that was always Jesus's character. He was always seeking to do the will of the Father. He was always seeking to obey. And at this point, he were told simply that he is, he's hungry. He's at the end of the fast. The 40 days were there. He ate nothing. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And this is exactly when the enemy comes into play in verse three. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. So the first temptation that Jesus receives settles right in with Jesus's circumstance that he is facing. Jesus is hungry and he ought to be able to provide himself with food. I'm hungry. My time there is completed of my fast that I set out to uh, participate in. And so now it's time to break that fast. Why don't you just make yourself some food, Jesus? Now, before we go any further, here's what you need to know about this. This is not some like weird cosmic battle between Jesus and Satan. Whereas, uh, you know, Satan has like this power that's comparable to Jesus's power. And Jesus is like, just barely holding him off here. This is not a battle of equal footing, right? This is explicitly uh, Satan trying to manipulate and control Jesus uh, and trying to get him to do things that um, in, in order to, to cut him off from God and in order to prevent him from being successful in his mission. Now, as we come to this text, you see this first section here is that he is tempting Jesus to make food. Hey, Jesus, you see those stones over there? Why don't you command them to become bread? His very request for Jesus to do this while it is a temptation, it's also a declaration that Satan is not the creator. He cannot create. Satan cannot be like, stones, your bread. Only God does that. Satan's a creation. He's, he's uh, an angel that uh, was re in rebellion from God. So he doesn't have this ability to be like, oh, stones, your bread. Now Jesus, eat that thing. It's right there. Why don't you just get it? He doesn't, he doesn't hold that same level of of power. He's trying to make suggestions to get Jesus to outrightly um, deny what God is doing in his life. And here's, here's what um, his, his temptation that he brings is entirely more complicated. Uh, and here's, here's how it kind of breaks down. Jesus is hungry. He potentially wants something to eat here. Um, and so he says, Jesus, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, the entirety of this temptation, it is connected to this word, if, right? It's, it's pre presenting, presenting this before Jesus says, like, if this is true, you'll be able to prove it to me. If you are the son of God, if this is true of you, you should be able to accomplish this. But recall that this comes connected right after the genealogy about tracing the lineage of who Jesus is and connected to the baptism, where we find what is said of Jesus by God the Father to be true. God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The testimony of God stands there. And then the next thing we hear is somebody doubting the testimony of God saying, if, if 
you are the son of God. Immediately, this comes in as this battle against what God has said about his own son. You're not the son of God. If you are, you'll prove me wrong right here. If Jesus was to provide food for himself here by this miraculous um, path, it would be an act of questioning God's provision for him. It, if you recall, it was the spirit who led him out here. It was the spirit of God who led him out into the wilderness to commune with him, to rely on him, to bring him into this period of, of self-denial. And so he's saying, you don't need to worry about that. You can take care of yourself. You are, you're the son of God. You don't need to trust God the father. He's not going to, he doesn't need to take care of you. You've got this. You can handle it yourself. And so what Jesus does is he reaches into the scriptures and fights the battle through the truth of the scripture. And what he does here is he connects it to that time um, that is anchored in Moses's receiving of the law on Mount Sinai. <clears throat> he answered him, it is written, verse four, man shall not live by bread alone. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So what Jesus does is he reaches all the way back into the Old Testament, into the book of Deuteronomy, which means second law, um, chapter eight, verse three, and he cites a portion of this verse. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So what Jesus does is he says, I see what you're doing here, Satan. I see that you're trying to distract me. I see that you're trying to get me to provide for myself to fight against God here in the wilderness. But there were a people who did this already. There were a people who God had, had rescued Israel. He had promised them that he would provide for them, that he would protect them while they were in the wilderness, and he provided manna for them. Uh, and he demonstrated that faithfulness for 40 years. And so when in the book of Deuteronomy in, in chapter eight here, Moses is uh, writing in this second law to remind the nation of Israel not to doubt God's promises, not to doubt God's provision, not to doubt God's goodness upon entering the promised land. And so he's uh, saying here, I see what you're doing. You're trying to get me to doubt God's promises, God's provision. He's, he's remembering what was written in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Because Jesus had himself had a promise that he was God's son. And he had a promise that God would uh, enable him to accomplish his mission. That God would protect him. And so God would lead Jesus into the desert to fast here. So if God wanted his son to eat, he would provide the food to eat. That, that would need to be um, eaten. He, Jesus didn't need to provide for himself. And so what's actually happening here uh, after these 40 days is that this Satan is, is really suggesting to Jesus like, well, you know, you've been out here for a long time and you haven't eaten and God hasn't provided for you. So probably God has abandoned you and he stopped protecting you and he stopped um, giving you what you need. So why don't you just make yourself some food? It's been a while since you've eaten. Uh, you know, it's not looking great for you. <clears throat> you better look out for yourself because, uh, you know, perhaps, perhaps God's, you know, he's, he's really actually treating you poorly. You've been out here and, and you got to take care of yourself. He's not really doing what, what he said he would do. You got to look out for yourself uh, because, you know, clearly God's not looking out for you. This is, uh, kind of the temptation that's coming alongside uh, this and uh, kind of the thoughts that are coming alongside this temptation. That Satan's bringing all these implications to bear in this, hey, make some food. It's doubting God's provision, doubting God's protection, doubting that God has led him here, bringing all these things into a connected place, a connected intersection where um where Jesus can feel overwhelmed by these things. And I think that this is a, a, an incredibly common temptation because we all face those moments um, where we're trying to obey the Lord. We're trying to do what God we think um, is walking with the Lord, 
but we're asking that same question, like, what in the world is going on? Like, why, why am I out here? Why is, is God like not providing for me? He's not giving me like the, like what I need. Like I better start taking care of myself because clearly God's not taking care of me. I got to start like making things happen for myself. Right. And we begin to, we begin to um, look to satisfy our bodily appetites uh, more than acting in obedience to God's word. But we've got to fall back on the promises of scripture that say that God will provide. God will meet our needs in his own way. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He falls back on those promises in Deuteronomy chapter eight, that God will um, bring sustenance when needed, that God will provide and protect uh, in, in his own way. That He's going to do his own thing and that we ought to trust him as the creator. So we don't need to look to manipulate God. We don't need to look to get our own way or say, you know, God's not really doing right by me or taking care of me, but we can trust that he is faithful, that he's giving his own son. And so we can receive all of the goodness from him. The scriptures tell us, uh, will not he who has given his own son uh, withhold good from us? He, of course, will provide exactly what we need when we need it. The problem arises when we determine what we need, when we want it, and we've got to uh, receive it at a particular time, and God's clearly not on the same program with us. When we are wanting to usurp God's power, God's authority, and essentially become God, and we give ourselves what we think we deserve. Now, that's the first temptation here that Jesus faces. The second one is marked out for us in uh, <clears throat> verse 5. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and you shall in him only shall you serve. So now we find that um, Jesus is, is kind of given this new perspective um, what, that allows him to see this huge um, expanse of territory, this massive amount of, of land, and he's given a view of the earth, um, and he's presented all of the kingdoms of the world, all of... <clears throat> all of their authority, all of their glory. And he's been told, these things can be yours. In a place in time, in the desert, in the wilderness, without food, when Jesus has nothing, the enemy is coming to offer him everything. You've got nothing? Look, all of this can be yours. All of this can be yours. And uh, the devil makes this claim here, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. Now, he makes this claim that all the earthly kingdoms, he has the ability to hand over to whomever he wants, that he rules over them. And in a sense, that's true, and in a sense, it's not true. Um, that in a sense, it's true that uh, he's making an assumption here that um, all of the kingdoms of the earth are under the sway of the wicked one, which um, is clearly marked out for us in scripture, that he has a highly influential um, presence in the world. Um, but the reality is, is that the earth will be redeemed by God's power. And until this moment, uh, the, the kingdoms of this world, they are connected to uh, the power that the enemy has. And so um, there is some level of quote unquote ownership there. I think mostly this is a, um, a little bit of hyperbole here uh, because if you recall, Satan is called out as a liar and all he does is tell lies. He was a liar from the beginning. And so he is going to continue on that path. He's not trying to speak 
out of this place truthfully and be like, I'm honestly representing this to you, Jesus. Uh, he knows that his time is short. Um, John chapter 12, verse 31 tells us that uh, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Satan will be judged. And so uh, we find here that this is really being offered to Jesus as a shortcut, a shortcut, if you will. Jesus, you came here to, to take over all the kingdoms of the world and to have your way and to, to, to become ruler over all these people. And so, you know, I'll just, I'll just give them all to you. This temptation here for Jesus is about uh, taking power out of his own way, through his own method, through <clears throat> apart from God's promise, apart from God's provision. He's trying to tell them, you know, I know that you have a plan that you're supposed to be walk walking on, um, you know, this road of obedience to God. And that is a narrow and difficult road, but this would be faster if you just took the much easier, much wider path. Why don't you just hop on here and uh, you can accomplish that in a much faster way, a quicker way. And you can receive um, those things that, you know, you're here for much more quickly. Um, but there's a condition here, of course. He says in verse seven, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. He's uh, saying that you've got to, you've got to uh, reject your allegiance to God the Father, and you've got to bow down and worship me. You've got to recognize that I am the authority, that I am the ruler, that I have sovereignty over the kingdoms of the earth. He's essentially saying, you're going to become my partner, Jesus. You're going to reject the rule of God the Father, and you're going to uh, come to me because I have the authority to give it to you, and I will help you get there. Uh, he's making this invitation to Jesus to join him on this quick and easy path. You don't need to go through the cross. You don't need to go through hardships and difficulties. You don't need to face any of those things. Just easiest way. This is the best option that you should take. <clears throat> but that's not the way that God has marked out for his people. That's not the way that God has marked out for Jesus. We're told explicitly that the road is narrow, that the road is difficult, that it is hard. But a lot of times, as we are walking through life, we're looking for the path of least resistance. We're looking for the path of efficiency. We're looking to accomplish things as quickly as possible. And I know we've said this before so many times, but God is never in a hurry. He's always being described as being slow, <laughs> slow. He's not in a rush. You're only in a rush when you have limited resources, when you have limited knowledge, when you don't want to make, uh, when you have to move as quickly as possible. But God has unlimited resources, unlimited ability, unlimited time. So he's not in a rush. He doesn't need to do, to act in these ways that, that we are controlled by. The Lord is looking to have maximum effectiveness in our lives, that we might know him. The journey is difficult for the Christian. The road is narrow because it allows us to rely on him. And the goal of that road is that we get to be with him and to see him and to know him at the end. But in making the road difficult, it gives us what we are pursuing along the journey because we have to rely on him to navigate this road that is narrow, the road that is difficult. He's giving us the gift of the end in the middle of the journey. We're not trying to get there to the end. He's saying, I'm going to equip you. I'm going to give you exactly what you're aiming for as the goal already. So you don't need to be in a hurry to get to the end because I'm already here. I'm already with you. We're not, we're not having the perspective that that's where the value is. We're trying to just get to the end and be done so that way it doesn't have to be difficult anymore. And when in reality, the best way to know someone is to go through difficulties with them. And there's no one better to go through difficulties with than the Lord. 
because he knows you perfectly, intimately. He created you. And so he knows exactly what you need when you need it. He can meet all of your needs according to his will, his desires, his plan. And it's perfect every single time. And here, Jesus knows that his desire is to follow the Lord, to walk with him. His desire is to walk on this difficult path, not just for his own sake, but for our sake. And so he responds again in verse eight out of the book of Deuteronomy, this time citing a summary of Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 13. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So Jesus has this singular focus of obeying the father, of fulfilling his calling. Whereas this entire time, Satan is trying to, to break the son's relationship to the father. He's trying to cut it in half so that way it cannot be restored. But for Jesus, he continues on with this singular focus. You shall worship the Lord your God only and him only shall you serve. He doesn't entertain uh, Satan's suggestions here he knows that there is no shortcut, that there's no shortcut. He's got to go to the cross. He's got to obey the Lord. He's got to uh, suffer, as the scriptures say, for our sake before he could be raised and enter into glory. He would not participate in the worship of the enemy. He only serves the Lord. And so, uh, he is undistracted, undeterred by this suggestion. And finally, we come to the last temptation in verse nine. He took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So the third temptation that we get described here is Jesus ending up on the pinnacle of the temple. Uh, We don't know exactly uh, which portion of it, but there was a section of the temple um, that was quite high. It had about a 450 foot uh, drop down and the historian Josephus Uh, he describes that there are, from that particular point, um, when people would kind of like look over that edge, it would kind of give them like vertigo, like give them like dizziness and they would feel, you know, kind of like thrown off, like that's how high it was. Uh, But Jesus is basically here at at an elevation that is high enough that if you were to fall off of it or jump off of it, that, you know, you're going you're gonna to die here. Um, and so this temptation here from Satan is to for Jesus to uh, jump off of here and to test God's care and uh, his trust of God. He's like, if, if, you're, if you are Jesus, if you are the son of God, he uses that same language there again. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. He's saying, if, if, you, if it is true that you are the son of God and you're righteous, then God's going to protect you, right? And this is how tricky Satan gets because now he's like, now he's like, oh, I see what you did, Jesus. The first two times, like I, the first times like there, uh, you were coming back at me with some scripture. So Satan pulls out his own scripture and he cites Psalm 91, uh, this section in Psalm 91, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. And so he pulls this out to try to argue that God's going to protect the righteous people. And so if you're God's son, you don't need to worry a bit. You don't need to, you don't need to be like, you know, stressed out about this. So uh, he pulls this out. Maybe he's serious about it, uh, but maybe he's actually just kind of mocking what Jesus was doing by using the scripture as well. Because if you look at that text, it actually is, um, the whole thing's kind of taken out of context anyways. Um, that's how the enemy works. He's trying to convince Jesus to do something based on something that's not even in context. 
that text in Psalm 91 is actually, it, it is really important. It's a, it's a really actually um, helpful, helpful test and, or helpful text. It's, it is about God um, protecting his people, but not about people who jump off of buildings. When it says there, um, when it says there, like, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they will bear you up uh, lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's talking about like just walking, like as you're walking on this long journey, as you're, as you're in the wilderness, the, the snakes won't be able to bite you. Like you're not going to stub your toe on a rock. Like he's going to enable you to walk and, and to protect you. Like even you can continue on this journey because God's going to enable you to keep going. Um, that God's protection is, is so connected to his people uh, that his angels will preserve your, your feet as you're walking. Similar in the sense that um, the people's, as they were in the wilderness for 40 years, the people's like shoes didn't wear out for 40 years as God like provided them that like footwear during that time of their wandering. Uh, he is saying here, like, he's going to, he's going to care for you at like the most basic level. He's so close to you and cares about your, the smallest details of your life that he's not going to allow you to like stub your foot on a stone as you're walking on this journey. If you are connected to him, you're trusting in him and you're not trying to go your own way. Like this is uh, the, the type of thing that is being said here. And Satan's like, well, just throw yourself off the building then. Like then it's, it's going to work. Um, but Jesus again responds back uh, with a citation from the scriptures. He's undeterred by uh, this attempt to distract him. Uh, and he responds with Deuteronomy 6, 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now he cites that portion, but again, this is connected to a deeper level. He says, you shall not put the, the part that he's citing is in Jesus's mind. It It's connected and it reveals something a little bit deeper going on in Jesus's mind. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test is what is what we're told here uh, in verse 12. But what we find in Deuteronomy 6.16 is that you shall not put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah, right? So this is a, again, a reminder to the nation of Israel as it enters the land um, of promise, not to test the Lord as it has done at Massah, uh, which is called out for us in Exodus chapter 17. And there um, we find that Israel was, was passing judgment on the Lord's provision, the Lord's deliverance uh, from Egypt by complaining that they shouldn't have ever left Egypt, that the freedom that he had given them, that the manna that he had provided was not enough. Uh, and they're complaining there about that. And he's saying that those people were complaining about the way that God was providing, the way that God was protecting. And Jesus here is essentially saying, uh, as the people complained there, uh, they were not to put God to the test there to complain about what God has done and to, to, um, to whine about his protection, his care for them. He had cared for them perfectly. Uh, but now Jesus says, I'm not going to complain or, or participate in testing God because you want to like complain about his, his care for me. He's like, I'm satisfied. I'm, 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 um, happy with what God has been doing, what the father has been working in my life. I am satisfied with his love, with his care for me. And so he says, uh, Jesus is essentially saying here, <clears throat> um, I'm not going to play your games, Satan, where you're trying to get me to, to put God in a situation to take care of me on my own terms, to manipulate him. Well, I'm going to do this. And so, you, you know, you've got to You've got to respond to it because I'm going to mess up your plan, God. Uh, Jesus is essentially coming back and saying, I am a son. I don't need to throw myself off of this uh, pinnacle to demonstrate that. God had proclaimed Jesus to be his son at the baptism. And so Jesus is content to rest on the promises of, of God and to uh, rest on the promises uh, that were shared with him at his baptism that he is, um, he's 
in a position where he is receiving all the rights and the responsibilities of sonship and that he doesn't need to demonstrate that God is going to be more pleased with him or earn God's love in a new way. And so we find here that after these three um, temptations that are listed here are uh, take place, verse 13, uh, the devil had ended every temptation. He departed from him until <clears throat> an opportune time. Now, Satan can't get anywhere with this, so he leaves for a while. But we're told here <clears throat> that he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, we don't get Satan explicitly called out until later in the Gospel of Luke. That doesn't mean that um, the enemy didn't try to come and to bring other distractions in his life, that, of course, we see other demonic activity taking place over the entirety of the Gospel of Luke. Um, but what it does tell us <clears throat> most explicitly <clears throat> is that he's looking to come back at an opportune time. So we've got to be a people who are not giving him that opportunity. We've got to be a people who are every day putting on the full armor of God, that we are coming ready every single day, that we are being a people who are faithful to renew our minds in the truth of the gospel, that we are taking up the shield of faith, that we are putting on the helmet of salvation, that we are uh, strapping on the belt of truth, that all of these things that we are being ready for each day, we don't want to give opportunity because the enemy is looking for opportunity. He's looking to attack. And so we want to come ready for the fight every single day. We want to be prepared. We want to be ready to resist. As we read in the, um, <clears throat> in the book of James, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist, fight, because he wants to come. He wants to come and bring these temptations and bring these lies. We've got to be ready. But there are times where we're not ready, where we get defeated, where we get discouraged, where the enemy does come in and offers temptations and we fail. We've got to be ready to repent then. We've got to be ready to repent of our sin. We've got to confess <clears throat> to the Lord, ask for forgiveness, repent, and uh, then ready ourselves to fight again. Because we are a people um, who don't want to come in overconfident. We want to be a people who are eagerly confessing our weakness, that we need his help because we can't do it on our own. We need his armor. We need his work. We conquer by his blood, not by our own efforts, but not by our own work. The only one who can have success uh, is Jesus. He's the only one that has success, right? If you recall, his condition at the time of his temptation was one of weakness. He had nothing to eat for 40 days. He was as quote unquote, unprepared as you could be. He was in the wilderness. He had been fasting. He hadn't eaten. He had nothing to protect himself, but he was anchored in his desire to serve the Lord. And he was focused for 40 days. He was focused on seeking the Lord. And so when the enemy came, he was undistracted from that because he was ready to say, I've been out here focusing for 40 days on how to serve the Lord, how to honor him in being in relationship with him, being in communion with him. There's nothing that I have not received in any of these other days that have not yet prepared me for the temptations of the enemy. Jesus did this perfectly. He executed it perfectly without fail. Now, if you recall, if you recall, where's this taking place? This section, the temptation of Jesus <clears throat> takes place exactly at the end of the passage about Jesus being baptized and the declaration about Jesus being the son of God with whom he is well pleased. Now he faces a test. God is well pleased with him. He's in a perfect situation. Things are great. He's in relationship with the Lord. 
couldn't have been a more ideal situation. The Lord has said, you're great. You're perfect. You're well, I'm well pleased with you. Everything's awesome. Then we get a genealogy that traces the line from Jesus to Adam. All the way from where Jesus is currently to Jesus or from, from Jesus to Adam, the son of Adam, the son of God. So we have now the lineage there. And now we begin the temptation of Jesus. So we're meant to see, we're meant to zoom out and to say, just as Jesus existed in a perfect, perfect relationship with God and God said, I'm well pleased with you at the baptism, this new creation, new beginning account. And just as we find the genealogy of Jesus tracing back to Adam, the son of God, who was the first son of God, now we get the second son of God facing a similar temptation. Except for in this situation, Jesus's condition was entirely different. Because in Adam's, in Adam's circumstance, Adam had not fasted at all. He had the ability to eat out of any tree in the entire garden. Jesus was, was fasting for 40 days. Jesus was denying himself food. But Adam was in paradise. Jesus was in the wilderness. Jesus could not have been at more of a disadvantage compared to what Adam experienced. But yet when Adam faced the temptation from, from the devil, he sinned. But where, where the first son of God failed, the second son of God, Jesus, succeeds. He is faithful where Adam was a failure. Jesus goes out into the wilderness in a similar sense that he represents uh, a new Israel. Israel was called out as God's special people to live in relationship with him and to keep his laws. But because of their disobedience, they were kept out of the land of promise and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus goes out and is in the desert for 40 days fasting. Where Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus succeeds. And so because of this, he has victory and is preparing himself to face the ultimate temptation to not complete his mission to not give his life for all of us. But he was tempted there. He will continue to face that temptation, but he prays for strength. We find in John uh, 18 in the garden of Gethsemane, and he goes joyfully to the cross, bearing our sin, bearing our shame, bearing all of Adam's failures, bearing all of Israel's failures, bearing all of our failures, all of our sin, so that we might be clean. And so it is that when we trust in him for salvation, he makes us clean. And we continue to try to walk upon this narrow road with him. And we mess up and we fail. And it happens every day and we repent. And we get back up and we continue with him. Not apart from him, with him. You see, the scriptures tell us that Jesus experienced all of these things. He became a man so that way he could identify with us in our weakness. He could understand what we're going through. He could understand the hardships of life. So that way when things are difficult, when things are hard, we're unable to say to him, well, you don't really know what I'm going through. He knows. He knows better than anybody as he's experienced the totality of the human condition. I'll leave you with these two verses. I guess three verses. Um, <clears throat> out of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, 
he is able to help those who are being tempted. Right? So we have this idea that Jesus was tempted and is able to help us to come alongside us when we have those temptations. But then we, he goes on, the writer of Hebrews goes on in chapter four, verse 15. And he says this, for we do not have a high priest, that is Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yet without sin. So it tells us there that when we're trying to be like, I don't know how to navigate this. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get around this. Well, why don't you go to the one who has conquered? Why don't you go to the one who has navigated, who has been tempted yet without sin and find out how he did it? The secret is not he's not that he's going to, to tell you how he did it. The secret is that he seeks to obey the Lord and you do it by seeking to obey Jesus, to walk with him. And so we're told in Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, again, this is just about seeking answers and finding Jesus because he's the answer to every question. You're going to have answer, have questions about how do you navigate this or how do you do this? You always find the answers found in Jesus. You're not going to find something that prevents you from Jesus as the answer. He's always the answer. This is how do you, how do you apply our wonderful savior in each situation? How do you set your sights on him more quickly? We each go out into the wilderness. We each go out into our, <clears throat> our walk of life each day. But we've got to be focused on that preparation. We've got to be focused on guarding ourselves, on renewing our minds, on being connected to uh, obeying the will of God and not seeking our own way, but seeking forth him. It begins uh, and continues with what is described of Jesus in that very first verse. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's compelled by the Holy Spirit. He's seeking to be, uh, to be led by the Holy Spirit, completely yielded to him, completely obedient to him, to every word of God, to be emptied of sin and indwelt by the word of God, by the Holy Spirit. This is what we're pursuing. And when we do this, <clears throat> we're able to walk in victory each day as the Spirit compels us to serve the Lord, as it leads us into uh, a more faithful walk. And so I encourage you, come ready. Come ready to fight each day. Come into your morning asking the Lord what the Holy Spirit might be leading us into in this day, how he might be at work in our life and how we can serve him most faithfully. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your goodness and kindness. We're thankful that you have given us the fullness of your spirit and that you're not withholding any of your spirit from us, but you want us to know you. You want us to be able to respond to who you are. You want us to be able to walk with you faithfully. And we pray that you would um, give us that wisdom. Your, your word says that you will give wisdom to those who ask. And so we are asking, how can we be more faithful? How can we walk with you? We pray that you would remind us each morning of the importance of putting on that armor, that you would put a little tickle in, in our minds that, that reminds us like, okay, we got to like get into the, get into the pages of scripture this morning. We've got to ready ourselves to read the word of God, to put on that armor, to prepare ourselves for the day to seek you in the morning. And so Lord, help us to, to do that. Help us to just also to simply um, prepare ourselves with 
the care of our bodily stewardship with our time and resources and sleep so we can um, take care of ourselves and get up with enough time and not be rushing around and um, not be stressed out about accomplishing or having enough time to accomplish things. But Lord, we want to carve out those little bits of time to where we can be um, in relationship with you. So Lord, empower us by your Holy Spirit to seek you. We need your help. And have your way in your church, Jesus. We love you. Amen.